The information shared on the Allo podcast is not intended as medical advice. Your medical care decisions should be made in consultation with your physician who is familiar with your specific case. Welcome to the Aloe Podcast from the Aloe Hope Foundation. I'm Bethany Weathersby. And I'm Molly Sherwood. And it is super difficult to follow the last episode that we just had. I think normally we kind of banter about a random story or something that we were talking about before we recorded, but talking about anything other than Rose's story seems just silly. So I know listening back to it, I listened to it recreationally and for editing because, you know, we listened back to it to edit and everything. But the second it was released to us to edit, I was just listening in my car for fun right away because I just I love hearing her voice. Her voice is so soothing to me. (laughs) And the way she describes things is so powerful. Like, do you remember something she said in the episode was that when she finally felt this sense of relief, I think that she was in Dr. Moise's care, she said, it felt like I picked something up and put it down. Yes. And the way that she demonstrated that visual was so, so cool. It was awesome. So anyway, I know a lot of listeners from Rose's story are going to be wondering what they can do to be a part of change. And so we're going to talk about that at the end of this episode, which is a great way to close out the season, I think. And also, we felt like today's episode would be the perfect follow up to Rose's story because we're kind of looking at maternal aloe immunization and HDFN through a, a more international lens, kind of stepping back and seeing the whole HDFN community of patients and researchers and providers worldwide and asking what can we learn from each other? And not only that, but what can we do to help each other as well? And then what can you, the listener, do to play a part in promoting awareness and proper care for families affected by this disease? So yeah, like you said, kind of the perfect way to finish out our second season of the Allo podcast. Plus, Molly... You and I get to nerd out to our heart's content on this episode, right? Our favorite. <laughs> you wrote, so you wrote the intro to the script and you wanted me in this moment to say abso-effing-lutely. And I do <laughs> agree with that sentiment, but I'm struggling with how to say that. <laughs> but abso effing lutely I agree. Yeah, because I know that's how you feel about research. <laughs> That's how I feel. So today is right up my alley because we're going to be talking about the most recent updates and advancements in the management of alloimmunization and HDFN. And this season has been so special because it's given us some incredible stories that I think in some ways are a better teacher than what research can offer. But research is a huge contributor to progress in healthcare and to our understanding of disease and adoption of change. So it's super encouraging to know that things are actively being done. And there are people who know that this is something that we need to understand more of. So who better to interview for this episode than a man who has published over 300 times and literally written textbooks about this disease and his highest achievement, Rose's personal chauffeur, Dr. (laughs) Moise. Yeah, who would have known? Welcome. 
Yeah, well, well, thanks for inviting me. This is going to be great. I'm looking forward to this. We have been too. And I think before we dive in, something I want to comment on that I observe between the two of you is the really special friendship that you've built over the years. Can you guys talk about how that started? Okay, well, that's funny because I wanted to know. <laughs> I've just never heard your take on when we met, Dr. Moise. Um because, well, on my end, I just found you on the internet and then emailed you and you didn't know who I was. And I was just kind of desperate for help. Do you remember that? It's been a while, but it comes back. Yeah, I do. Um, but you were just one of many people that emailed me at the time until I got to actually meet you in person. And then I met this powerful woman who had advocated for herself so well to try to have a baby. To have been told not to have a baby, right? Not to ever right. have a baby. Right. And that your family was over with and this was all you were going to ever have. Yeah. And I think that's why. So I emailed you out of the blue and you called me back like within 30, 45 minutes. You called me on my cell phone and I could not believe it. That was such a powerful conversation for me because it ended with me having this sense of hope that I had not had before. That's what I needed the very most at that moment was just hope that maybe I could pursue this and that there was treatment available for this. And there were experts who knew how to handle this type of pregnancy. And yeah, that was so powerful for me. And I really can't ever express what you mean to me and my family. You know, my children are alive because of you. And also, okay, I'm trying not to get emotional, but I feel like Aww. it's coming. Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm already getting emotional. But, um, I do this a lot with Dr. Moise. I think he's used to it. <laughs> but you really did heal my heart. Um, and you kind of pieced our family back together in a really miraculous way that we did not think was possible. And so thank you for that. And also, you did so much for Rose. And I also want to thank you for what you did for Rose and Lucas and Bruce. Um, you could have easily said no, like that's an impossible ask, right? When I came to you with that request. And um, I also can't express what that meant to me. I couldn't say no. I mean, here was a young lady who had lost two children and you all were supporting her to get here. Thank goodness, because God love you. Getting her through the visa process was such a <laughs> endeavor. But little did I know that I would be her, her Uber to get her uh, wisdom teeth removed. I didn't sign up for that part, but it worked out okay. Full service. Yeah, it was full service, really. Uh, and then at some point, when she lost her Ronald McDonald House accommodation, I just happened to have an extra house on my property. Right. And so Rose moved into my former mother-in-law's house. And Probably the hardest part of taking care of Rose was going to the grocery store every Sunday with her <laughs> because I hate going to the grocery store. I hate it. It is my passion not to go to a grocery store. But I would take Rose there and her eyes would be as big as saucers looking at all this food and fresh produce. And and she always would make me go back through the aisles to find things she forgot. That was the hardest part. Taking care of her medically was easy. Yeah. <laughs> Only you would say that. Yeah, Rose was very critical of some of our food. She thought our food was all way too sugary. She was like, your bread tastes like sugar. And why do you have cookies? They don't have cookies. They have digestive biscuits. That's their cookies. So she's like, do you have digestive biscuits? And I'm like, I have I have no idea. I've never looked for digestive biscuits. You guys had a really sweet relationship that just 
means so much to her. I know. Yeah, mm-hmm. I felt like she was like an, an adopted daughter after a while. Yeah, I mean, we've been through yeah. so much here for six months with uh, Lucas and uh, both in utero, then after he was born, and yeah, it was uh, it was an experience. Believe me, I'll never forget it. Aww. We dropped her off at the airport, and I went to go. Aaron stayed with her, my daughter. And I went over to park in the cell lot to wait for them to check in. And I happened to go in this little convenience store. And it was just fortuitous because there was uh, these little license plates. And the first one I saw oh, was yes. Lucas. Oh. I couldn't believe it. It looked Texas license plate. So I bought it right away and we yes. sent it to her. So he has a oh, Texas license it. plate. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my god. Because he's a native-born so Texan, sweet. right? Yeah. Yes, he is. We're just so glad Dr. Moise is here with us. So let's dive in. We have a lot to cover. Let's do it. So let's start. We're going to talk about research coming out of the Netherlands, which they publish probably the most prolifically on this disease. Do you agree, Dr. Moise? And so we're going to talk about some updates from them. We're going to talk about a new uh, medical treatment that may become available soon. And we're going to talk about sort of what this disease looks like in Africa. So those are the main kind of buckets for today. So the plan is I'm going to kind of bring up these things and then just throw it to you guys to talk about. So that's the plan. Sounds good. Yep. Cool. So the first one I wanted to bring up is from the researchers in Leiden, who we admire very much, and they put out awesome work on this disease. So they actually just published something related to a question that moms ask us all the time, which is, I already had an affected pregnancy. I already needed IUTs what's going to happen my next pregnancy? And so they did a study on subsequent alloimmunized pregnancies, which is what happens in a pregnancy where the mom needed an IUT before, what's going to happen next time? And they did this in anti-D and anti-Kel pregnancies over an 18-year period. And so they had 69 women get pregnant again, And most of them, all but 10, did need IUTs again. And what's interesting is that on average, they needed them three weeks earlier than in their previous allo pregnancy. Does that kind of line up with what you've seen, Dr. Moise? Absolutely. And typically, we tell patients it's going to come on earlier and that we sort of need to start our surveillance earlier than what happened in the previous pregnancy. But every now and then, we're surprised, as this study found, I think it was 14%, didn't need any transfusions, which we yeah. don't quite understand too much. But, um, And I think um, some of them required them later than the previous pregnancy. So there's a lot about the immune system we don't understand to be able to predict the, the outcome in the next pregnancy. So we have to follow those very carefully. That also surprised me when I read this. I was kind of shocked, like, wow, that's, I guess, more than I expected would go on to not need IUTs. Thinking to my pregnancies, you know, I've had four Kel pregnancies. Lucy died, but then the next baby, Nora, her first IUT was at 24 weeks with the help of plasmapheresis and IVIG. And then the baby after that, same treatments, plasmapheresis, IVIG, and his first IUT was at 28 weeks same titer. (laughs) And it was just a shock to me. Yeah, there's some variables we just don't understand about the level of antibody or how it crosses. And then I always say, remember, the baby's not an innocent bystander. It actually takes the red blood cells out of circulation. So it's a participant in its disease. So all those variables are just poorly understood. By the way, those babies that the ones that didn't need IUTs all had anti-D, not anti-Cal, which I thought was I guess it wasn't terribly Mm. surprising, but I just wanted to comment on that. 
Yeah, and I think the other important point, Molly, is they all were antigen positive. So obviously, if you had a heterozygous partner and you carry a negative baby, no matter what your titer is, it's not going to have a problem. But in that study, all of them were antigen positive. So they should have been sick, or mm-hmm, most of them right. were. Yeah. Did they have IVIG? Did these? How was their treatment different in different pregnancies, or did they all have similar treatments? Some of them did. Um, uh, some of the ones that presented earlier had IVIG. I think one was on the NIPO trial, and they excluded that patient. But they looked at the data with and without IVIG, and it wasn't any different. We know IVIG can prolong the pregnancy by three weeks in general. Uh, I think they looked at that and broke it down. But some of the babies were treated or the moms were treated with IVIG. I'm surprised because I feel like that would really skew the results, but um, I could be basing that on my own. I mean, I think it was like an eight-week delay for me with the onset of fetal anemia for my babies. Um, That's the difference that IVIG made for them. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. In general, if you look at the Pettit trial, it's two to three weeks. But again, I think it depends a lot on when you start it. So you have to start it fairly early, like 10 or 12 weeks when the antibody's just beginning to cross the placenta. I think sometimes we are using it too late. And and obviously it has less effect because the antibodies already crossed to the baby. Um, so I think that's an important uh, point to make. You know what else I want to call out, which is a good segue to the next study we're going to talk about, is when they were referring to the babies that didn't need IUTs, of course, those babies did tend to be, I think, delivered a little bit earlier because then they would start to develop signs of anemia at like 35, 36 weeks, and they would say, oh, let's just deliver this baby. So it said, they said all neonates required phototherapy in that group, which is given prophylactically after a pregnancy complicated by aloe antibodies. And I thought that was so cool because we don't always see that in the U.S. We don't always see p- babies just getting thrown under lights right when they're born, knowing they're going to potentially have HDFN. So I wanted to call that out because I really like that they do it that way. I've talked to Enrico. They're pretty aggressive at phototherapy. I mean, why not start it? It's pretty innocuous and right. they take it away if you don't need it. So um, they, they start it pretty early. Yeah. And why do you think we don't do that here in the U.S., Dr. Moise? I'm not sure. Obviously, there's some logistics in getting the lamps there and all, and they may have limited resources of lamps sometimes. But uh, to me, just bringing in at least the the lamps on top of the baby would be pretty simple and then await and watch the bilirubin trend and see, you know, where it goes. I feel like part of it also is it seems like folks for high billy unrelated to HDFN, they don't necessarily routinely check billy right at birth because I don't remember what the AAP guidelines say, but it's later. It's like, you know, six to 12 hours after birth or something. Yeah, I think if we, I think there should be good communication between the OB slash MFM and the neonatologist to tell them this baby's coming. We always get a cord billy. And, you know, if you have a cord billy of three or more, your baby's going to have a high billy once it's on its own. Uh, And so that sort of tips them off that, wow, this baby's going to have some bilirubin problems. So, you know, a good communication and passing the baton between the neonatologist and and the MFM or OB, I think is paramount here. I think so too. And we were, we have fantasies about what we can do to help with that transition for moms, like creating a fetal health record, even if the mom fills it out herself and brings it with her to her delivery and just kind of helping to aid with that transition. Cause it is super important that things don't fall through the cracks. This is a great lead in though, to the next paper from Leiden. So they just published this year also 
a paper on kind of a review of the history and treatment, but mostly the neonatal management that they do for HDFN. And it's a really concise, like neat and tidy paper that Bethany, you said was like super engaging even to read. Like we were talking about that before. Yeah, I love this paper. I keep going back to it and reading it (laughs) for fun. They do a great job summarizing the history and the pregnancy treatment of the disease, which isn't even the goal of this paper. But then they go on to explain how they manage it. And so they break it into two phases, early phase and late phase, which kind of reminds me of what, Bethany, you gave an awesome analogy. For all I know, maybe this came from Dr. Moise, so I'm not sure where to give credit. But remember you gave that analogy? I think it just came from my brain. Nice. Okay, original content here from Bethany. I see these things in like, I visualize them. And so I see them in a like scenario or a picture. Classic educator here. (laughs) The, yeah, elementary educator. That's where my brain is at. Um, The Billy Rubin to me feels like a tsunami. It's like, right away it's coming ashore you gotta run it's like hitting you gotta be aware immediately and then the delayed onset anemia feels like a volcano that's already ruptured and the lava is slowly creeping down the mountainside it's coming it's you can't really stop it but it's slow and so something you also have to be aware of but right now When you first have um, a newborn baby, the thing to really be aware of is that tsunami of bilirubin. Okay, so early phase, hyperbilly tsunami. That's what we're equating together. And so they measure bilirubin right at birth, just like you said, Dr. Moise, and then every three to four hours. And okay, this is a random nugget that I thought was so cool. And I want to hear what you guys think about it. So they were able to comment on how the disease presents differently based on the antibody the mom has. So for them, if the baby has or if the mom has anti-D or little C, they're like, get that baby under the lights right now. But if the baby uh, has anti-E or anti-big C, then they say, you know, those babies need to be under lights, but maybe not to the extent that it would sacrifice important skin-to-skin time. And then this I thought was so interesting, and I did not know this, but it kind of makes sense. They say that Kel actually tends to have lower Billy levels because physiologically, It's not necessarily the breakdown of mature blood cells that's as big of a problem in Kel as it is the inhibition of making new ones. So they even have studied this, and they said that in Kel pregnancies, those babies with HDFN needed less phototherapy, 2.4 versus 4.1 days, and less exchange transfusions, 6% versus 62% compared to anti-D. So what do you guys think about that? Well, you know, it's fascinating because, and this is going to predate both of you, but when we used to do bilirubin levels in amniotic fluid, as it was used to be called Delta D450, uh, to decide when a baby was getting sick, it worked great for anti-D, but it didn't work very well for Kel, which would go right along with this. So the bilirubin levels were much lower in the babies who were anemic from Kel, and we had to change our numbers. Uh, and I remember stories of patients calling me saying, my doctor uh, doesn't know about MCAs yet and keeps doing Delta Ds and they're normal. And I went, mm, you need to do an MCA. So it goes right along with what we used to know years ago when we did amniocentesis to follow these diseases that 
you know, Kel's a double hit. It's there is some hemolysis, but it's not to the same degree as D. Uh, but it's a bone marrow suppression that that happens with Kel. So yeah, it makes sense. They wouldn't need exchanges quite as quickly uh, for their bilirubin issues. And and could we say like the level of hemolysis? Well, I guess maybe the aggression of hemolysis would be the same. It's just that with anti D, the baby's creating more blood to be destroyed. Is that right? Than the baby with Kel? Uh, yeah, because again, as we said, it's suppression of the bone marrow, so it's not making enough red cells, and then. The ones it does make uh, are affected by the maternal antibody. So there's probably not globally as much bilirubin produced. Um, yeah, now that makes sense. This is kind of interesting. Not to say, of course, that you shouldn't be monitoring a Kel baby of, as closely as a D baby, but they're just kind of talking about priority in the first hours, I think. Okay, so then they talk about, then they section it over to the late phase, which is late anemia presenting in these babies. And they say that babies ought to be monitored weekly for hemoglobin and reticulocyte count initially for the first six weeks and then as applicable until around three months of age. And that's kind of consistent with what we've said in previous episodes. And I think that's also what, Dr. Moise, you give patients when they kind of take some paperwork in hand to their post-birth neonatologist, right? Yeah, and I think another statistic I found fascinating um, because they follow their babies so closely is that 80% of the babies that had transfusions needed a top-up transfusion later on. But 60% of the babies who didn't get treated with transfusions still had ongoing hemolysis after they were born and eventually needed top-up transfusions. So you're not out of the woods just because you didn't have transfusions. You still need to be followed pretty carefully after your baby's born. Wow. And that and you're talking about transfusions in utero. Yes. So 80% of the ones that had in utero transfusions ended up with top-ups. Correct. But 60% of the babies who didn't need in utero transfusions still needed top-ups later in pediatric life. Right. That's that's a lot. Yeah. Wow. How many babies are, are not followed weekly with those blood tests yeah. um, just because they didn't have IUTs? That's a great question. I don't know the answer. I, I think that what we are seeing, and Bethany, you and I talk about this all the time, is the AAP mm -hmm. is really good at putting out guidelines. They just updated them last year on how to manage bilirubin, but then they're silent on anything after that, which is, we need we need an algorithm for our neonatologists and pediatric you know, specialists to know what to do with these kiddos afterwards. Most of them are not aware what to do. Yeah, we're seeing that too on the patient side, for sure. Um, something I liked about the wording here was that they say weekly blood draws for six weeks and then kind of at your discretion after that. And I feel like that is more palatable to the pediatrician than weekly blood tests kind of until the baby's out of the woods. I, I don't know. We've just seen a lot of patients have to kind of push for that care. And then um, often they get a, I don't know unfavorable response from their provider because they feel like it's overkill. But I think that maybe if they're coming to them and saying, let's just let's just do six weeks weekly and then we can go from there, I think it would be um, more widely accepted. What do you guys think? Well, I think you can individualize to some extent. Um, I, I like to look at, when I talk to pediatricians and pediatric hematologists, we talk about reticulocyte counts. And if they're going up, and the hemoglobin is stable, then the baby's recovering, particularly after IUTs. Um, we like a 2% number for two weeks, but I think it can vary. 
But I think as long as your hemoglobin is stable or going up and your reticulocyte count is going up, you're, you can individualize to that particular baby and how it's responding. What's interesting is I've asked the hematologist to um, draw some uh, DATs on those babies. And even with their reticulocyte count going up, the DAT is still positive. So that antibody mm. is hanging around from the mom for three or four months. It's still there from what she achieved, um, you know, from being exposed in utero. Yes. Um, my hemat- uh, pediatric hematologist actually checked my baby's DAT as part of their blood work towards the end because they just felt more confident discharging them, knowing that my antibodies weren't in their system. And that also gave us peace of mind to be like totally done. Okay. There's no antibodies to destroy what they are making. Can you explain the utility of the reticulocyte count for our listeners too? So the reticulocyte count is just a measure of the young red blood cells coming out of the bone marrow. And I think it reflects the baby's response to anemia. So we know at least in the IUT babies that they their bone marrow goes to sleep, if you would. We're not quite sure why. Some people believe it's related to the different type of hemoglobin we put in the babies. So we put adult hemoglobin in fetuses. They're supposed to have fetal hemoglobin. But whatever, we suppress their bone marrow. So when you look at them, say after the third transfusion, there are no reticulocytes left. It's all donor cells. Uh, and at birth, it's the same. There's no reticulocytes. So until you start seeing those, you know their bone marrow hasn't started to recover yet. And when that happens, when the reticulocyte count goes up, you know the bone marrow is starting to work again. And that's a good sign that the baby's turned the corner and it's headed off to a normal life. Yeah, that's an awesome indicator. I feel like sometimes we forget to talk about it. Okay, one more thing I wanted to bring up from this study that Bethany and I thought was really interesting is that they introduced this kind of tiered model for the cutoffs at which they would do a transfusion for these babies. And they do comment, just like you did, Dr. Moise, that internationally there is no consensus on cutoff values or dosage or transfusion rates. But for them, they have a hemoglobin threshold depending on the baby's age. So it's 10.4 or lower in the first week of life, 8.8 in the second week, and 7.2 from week three onwards. So what do you guys think about that tiered model? Well, I think that makes some sense. You don't want to over-transfuse the baby, right? If you keep putting blood in the baby as top-up transfusions, you continue to suppress the bone marrow. So you want to let the baby uh, sort of on its own have its bone marrow wake up. So that's why they've proposed these levels. Now, no, these aren't evidence-based. These are, I've talked to the Leiden group and they're sort of shooting from the hip about what a baby will tolerate. Some babies don't tolerate those levels. So the mom will report the baby's sleeping all the time or it's not feeding anymore. That baby still needs to go in and probably need a top up, even though it may not, you know, be as low as some of these levels. But most babies are going to tolerate, in essence, an hematocrit of 21% several weeks out. So you don't want to jump in and give blood too quickly, but you don't want to let the baby get sick either and stop eating. Uh, so you have to, again, individualize a bit. But I like the fact that they have some numbers because most hematologists, again, kind of shoot from the hip and do what they want. And that may be to the detriment of that bone marrow waking up by giving too much blood too quickly. Yeah, I I loved this piece because it's something that we've seen again in the like patient population is like, these babies often are premature 
And so they're dealing with a lot. They're learning how to breathe on their own, regulate body temperature, learning how to feed, and then dealing with this HDFN as well. And it's a lot to deal with as a tiny new human. And they seem to do better with a higher transfusion threshold when they're super young. And it didn't make sense, I think, to have one threshold regardless of age. And I know with my own son, Callum, he was born at 34 weeks. So again, he was dealing with a lot. He was struggling with oxygen, DSATs, and his feeding. And he was dropping, but he was his hematocrit was like 25. And they kind of thought, you know, we should let it go lower because we don't want to transfuse too soon. But we realized, no, I think he needs this to progress. And so um, right after that transfusion, he started eating better and he didn't have the oxygen desats anymore. And then he was discharged from the NICU just a couple days yeah, later. Makes sense. makes sense. I don't know. Are we going to talk about EPO at all? Because that's the new boy in the block to help with all this problem. Oh, yeah. Go for it. We should talk about that. So uh, Leiden again, God love Leiden, uh, <laughs> has just completed a randomized trial. I think it's been accepted for publication in Lancet. I've not seen it yet. But it showed that if you put the baby on EPO, which is erythropoietin, it's the hormone that drives the bone marrow. It comes from the kidney. But we do know how to make it uh, you know, genetically. You can uh, sort of get that bone marrow to come back quicker. And in their study that I heard about, uh, the baby still needed top-up transfusions, but not as many and not as quickly. Uh, so they're beginning to use that more. What I've recently found out is there's two forms. Um, one is a little bit more expensive. I forget the name of it, but it's once weekly. And then the cheaper one is three times a week. And I know they were using that with Rose um, and baby Lucas, but she was having to come in three times a week to give shots. Uh, which is a lot, and the subcutaneous shots is just under the skin. But in the but in the trial out of Leiden, they used it once a week, and it was uh, showing clear evidence of improving the recovery time for the bone marrow. And so I think that's going to be the new paradigm for these kids with the hypoproliferative anemias is to put them on weekly uh, EPO shots to help them recover quicker. Which makes that sense. would be awesome, especially because I know we're going to talk in this episode about countries with limited access to IUTs and access to blood. And so other treatments like that that can prevent a baby from needing a transfusion would be huge. And Lucas did not need a transfusion after birth, right? He never needed one. No, he never. He was put on EPO pretty quickly and he never needed any kind of top ups, which was surprising because he mm -hmm. had very few reticulocytes at the time of birth. Yeah. So. Some promise there. Yeah. Yeah. That's so exciting. All right. Dr. Moise, here's a question. One thing I really loved about this study was their kind of look back at the history of HDFN. It just reminded me that we haven't even known about this disease for 100 years. Like it's, it, we have known about it less than 100 years. Okay. We couldn't even treat or prevent this disease until the 1960s. And so it makes sense that we are going to be you know, having these new innovations and new advancements. And, and sh I don't know, it just seems like those take so long to trickle down to the actual patients. And I'm wondering why that is, even though we know that this is a somewhat newly discovered disease. And so wouldn't it make sense that it is advancing quickly? And shouldn't we be more open to those advancements? 
Yeah, great question, Beth. I, I think that probably for common diseases, um, we see new therapies coming out more quickly. And I, I hate to say this, but it may be for financial remuneration that the pharmaceutical companies can do these big clinical trials quicker and they're gonna get more uh, bang for their buck on return on investment when they pick a disease that's common. It's hypertension, depression, you know, any of those things. This is a rare disease, and so it's gonna be much slower, number one, to do a study, uh, as we may talk about in a minute, but more importantly, then to get people to accept this um, because they just don't see, so I think it's our job on the academic side to try to educate the community, mostly through publications, to be quite honest, as to you know what's new on the block, how do you incorporate it? Um, I can't tell you how many calls I'm getting about free DNA right now. People are just wow. don't they just don't trust it, and because but the never, data's out there, right? Hasn't right, it been but published? they but they they still don't trust it. They still don't trust it. Why it's, is that? Just because it's new? Well, I've asked to them? that question, and and I said, <laughs> but you trust all the other genetic tests you do, and they went, well, right. I know, but it's so what what it came down to when I started asking the question was, well, we just accept all these other genetic tests, but in the free DNA tests for blood typing of the baby, it's too new. We don't have enough data to tell us it works. I said, well, look at Europe; they've been doing it for fifteen years. But it's not, well, that's Europe, it's not the United States. You get that line all the time too. Uh, but it's a technology that does work. It just takes time for people to get a comfort level to change their practice. Um, even with publications and evidence-based medicine and randomized trials, it just takes time to incorporate it into their practice. But it's it's mostly education and, and the patient's being empowered to ask about mm -hmm. it, right? Yeah. Yes. And this is, again, bringing me back to this study. The thing that I really noticed was when uh, there was a nurse, I believe she was in the UK, and she discovered that babies with jaundice were responding better when they were exposed to sunlight. And so then that led to the development of phototherapy treatment. But And then all of these other countries adopted that treatment. But the US, it took about two decades from what I've, I probably need to recheck and reread, but it, from what I'm remembering, it was so mm -hmm. slow. Yeah. And I thought about how many babies, how many babies in those 20 years or so um, died because they didn't have access to that therapy. You, you know, think about how common uh, high bilirubin is after birth. I don't know. I think Just we're better today at accepting European studies. I think the Europeans have done a much better job of of how they do their studies and mm -hmm. uh, how they publish their studies. Uh, I know in the United States, you know, we have an FDA that's very strict. Uh, the EU or EMA, it's called, actually is the equivalent of the FDA in Europe, is getting stricter. It wasn't as strict before. So people sort of doubted some of those studies. I think that's probably part of the, you know, unwillingness to accept data coming out of Europe. Oh. You ultimately have to repeat it in the States before you get FDA and other people to accept it, to be honest. <laughs> We need to see for ourselves first. That's how we work. Hey, while you're talking about cell-free DNA, let's just touch on that. So you're referring to cell-free fetal DNA, which we spell out as CFF DNA or sometimes just CFDNA. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first full disclosure, I'm, I'm an advisor to the company that offers it in the US. Um, it's billion to one is the company that study is called, I mean, the test is called Unity. 
Uh, and it's a free DNA test that is uh, uh, done between 10 and 12 weeks for most of the major uh, red cell problems like D, big C, little c, E, uh, JKA, uh, Kel. And so they've developed a pretty robust assay using sequencing, which is even better than what the Europeans do. They use PCR. And their initial paper, just was published a few uh, months ago, looked at uh, 1,400 internal samples. Now the critique is they sort of spiked the samples to make it look like maternal blood. And in 1,400 samples, they got it right 100% of the time, which is impressive uh, for all these antigens. What does that mean? They spiked the samples? So they took a maternal blood sample and they took a fetal sample of known fetal blood type, and they put a little bit in the maternal sample to mm -hmm. be equivalent to what you'd accept, expect uh, if you drew blood from a mother. Oh, I okay? see, I see. So they call it a contrived sample, which is an interesting name. Okay. But it sort of mimics what you would see in real life. Okay. Uh, and comes very proximate to it. So you can do it with a large number of samples because they know all these samples make up. So they had to find mothers that were negative, right? Take their blood and babies that were positive and they knew that and spike them together if you would. But in 1400 samples, they didn't miss it ever, which is impressive. Now you tell that to clinicians and they go, yeah, but that's not real life. That's, you know, kind of cooking the books. So they're now prospectively collecting samples of uh, patients that have the sample, you know, the assay has been sent in and then they're checking the babies after they're born. And it's gonna take a little while to get all those samples in, but eventually, and I've asked clinicians, how many do you need? And they said, maybe 250. Uh, once those samples come in and they show they're not making any mistakes, then I think people will embrace this technology. And I suspect it'll be in the next year or two, and as more of us write about it, I think it'll become more and more uh, accepted. And the impact of that would be huge because we'd be able to not have to do amniocentesis, at least in the moms who have those antibodies, which are the most common ones anyway. And hopefully we could stop having to worry about testing dad, which mm -hmm. is another kind of nuisance. You know, it's hard logistically to do and it gets ordered incorrectly all the time. But if we could get rid of those two things that would really streamline the way that we screen for this disease. Yeah, I've been asked to write a review for one of our journals, and, and you're right, uh, either dad may not be available, you're not sure the dad is, or what we run into quite a bit in our population is dad's not insured. Oh. And you can't put dad's sample on mom's insurance. Maybe she qualifies for Medicaid because she's pregnant. He doesn't have Medicaid. Right. And you can't put dad sample on mom's insurance so you can't get it done. So you're right, a free DNA test would be paid for and be much easier to do. Um, my desire is to see fewer people who obviously everybody wants to avoid amniocentesis is to not just do serial MCAs with a negative baby. Yeah. Uh, because I've heard horror stories of babies that are antigen negative who have some spuriously high MCA and mm -hmm. goes to cortisynthesis right. and maybe even gets a transfusion and the baby's negative and didn't need any of that risky behavior, right? So I think it takes all that off the table, which is fantastic. Because remember, MCAs have a false positive rate of 12% from the original study. Mm -hmm. So they can be wrong, mm -hmm. they can be wrong.
And something that we see often as well is negative antigen negative baby, and yet the mother is still subjected to regular titer blood draws and titer checks. And then if the, if the titer's high, there's all this fear and confusion and what do we do now and doubting of the antigen test and it causes a lot of stress. Yeah, I agree. And I think we need to embrace the technology mm-hmm. and feel comfortable with it and move on to your point and not do all these additional tests that will give you false positive results. Uh, I've seen titers go up in women who carry negative babies. I can't explain it. But it happens sometimes, and uh, you would think the titer wouldn't change, but sometimes it does. But it's not a good indicator whether she carries an antigen positive or negative baby. And one last benefit Mm -hmm. I want to add to the self-refetal DNA test is that you get results earlier than the amniocentesis. And this test can be done, was it, is it 10 weeks, nine weeks? 10 10 to 12 weeks, yeah. 10 to 12 weeks, okay. And then if you're doing an amnio, that's like 16 weeks? Right. And I think, to, and to your point along that same line is if you had a patient you would consider an IVIG plasmapheresis, you can order that at 10 weeks, get a result back within a week or 10 days and decide, do I need to move forward with some aggressive immunotherapy or not based on, yes. uh, you know, this, this baby's uh, antigen status? That is so helpful. Yeah. I'm really encouraged listening to all of this. It's yeah. just exciting to know that there may be a future that's something more streamlined and that is <laughs> not delivered with so many caveats and explanations like we usually have to do. Well, here's the, be- here's the best part of the story. It'll take a while too, but the day will come, and Europeans do this now, where if you're, say, RH negative, you'll get this test done before you get your Rogam shot at 28 weeks. And statistically, 40% of women don't need that shot. So why use it up? or why expose a woman to a blood product? So in Europe now, in many countries, they do this test at 28 weeks. If it's negative, baby's negative, they don't give Rogam. And in fact, in the Netherlands, they don't even check the baby's blood type at delivery. They're done. Yeah. They believe in this test so much that they don't check cord blood. They don't give Rogam after delivery. They just say, we're done with you. Right. And how many years have they had this test, did you say? I think it was 2006 they started doing that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. It's been a while. Yeah. And they feel very comfortable with that. Yep. So uh, this reminds me also of something that you've kind of floated to us lately about options that are non-invasive to monitor these babies. Didn't you say there's some research mm-hmm. going on in Utah about babies? It's like an exhalation study for babies with HDFN. Yeah, Bethany asked me to find a neonatologist who knows something about this disease, and I couldn't find one in the U.S. Every neonatologist that's crazy. There, there's an expert on HDFN, and I'm like, no, they know how to deal with bilirubin, and that's about it. So I found someone, uh, this amazing gentleman named Bob Christensen at the University of Utah has been working in this disease. He's a neonatologist and a pediatric hematologist, and he's been doing this work with exhaled carbon monoxide, not not dioxide, monoxide, you know, that bad stuff mm-hmm. you put monitors in your house looking for. Uh, and it turns out when you break down hemoglobin, you create a heme molecule and a carbon monoxide molecule. And you exhale it, You, it's in your breath. And so he actually uh, has, has a meter that works to pick this up in babies. And actually has shown 
that it's better than just checking Billy Rubens as to who's going to need lights, who's going to need phototherapy. That's so crazy. And it's a little nasal cannula. You put in the baby's nose and you just measure on this little meter in 10 minutes. And it tells you if the baby's licensed cells or not. And, and so I said, well, that's so cool. Could we do that in pregnancy? And he said, well, interesting you say that. We've done it in four women. And sure enough, when their babies are hemolyzing in utero, the mom exhales more carbon monoxide on our needles. And I went, wow, think about this for developing countries that don't have to do MCAs. Wow. Or what about false positive MCAs? So we're looking into that. We're going to try to see if we can use this meter and assess women before IUTs, who we know their babies are sick, right? We'll get some results and see what their carbon monoxide levels are. And then once the baby's out, like a day or two after delivery, we'll do it again to see what their baseline is. And and hopefully these would be non-smokers because carbon monoxide goes up when you smoke. Mm -hmm. So we don't want smokers in pregnancy anyway. But it may be a very cheap and dirty uh, way to follow that's, these pregnancies. That's awesome. Yeah, so I'm excited about it. And here's the, here's the funny part. AAP has approved this meter. It's an FDA-approved meter. What? To determine hemolysis in newborns. <gasps> yeah. That's amazing. It's approved wow. by AEP. So I, it's, so I asked my neonatologist locally when I was trying to put this research protocol together, what do you know about this? He says, absolutely nothing. Oh, my goodness. I'm like, That's too we got to get it out there. We got to get the oh, news so out. Another gotta... unsung secret yes. about uh, new data, new stuff, that uh, we need to be looking at this new technology. Yeah question just because I'm curious. So this is, is this similar? I mean, so I'm thinking of bilirubin is a byproduct of the destruction of red blood cells. So is carbon monoxide also then a byproduct? Yes. And, it's further up the chain. Okay. Yeah. And are there a lot of other byproducts and what are they? Uh, so bilirubin gets up being bilirubin. So your heme goes to carbon monoxide and bilirubin, which goes to bilirubin. Okay. And so it's kind of in the chain of breaking down the uh, molecule of hemoglobin. You produce carbon monoxide, you produce bilirubin. So it's right there associated with the breakdown of hemoglobin, right? Yeah. So if you have, it's this particular meter has been used in sickle cell patients and in other patients with hemolytic anemias yeah. to show that their levels are high because it's an indirect measure of the breakdown of the heme product. So okay. it, it makes sense that if a fetus is in utero breaking down hemoglobin, it's carbon monoxide is going to cross through the placenta to the mother and she's going to exhale it over and above her own. And therefore it may be elevated and be a predictor of fetal hemolysis uh, in utero. That's incredible. Be cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited about it. That is so cool. So this is kind of reminding me, I'm thinking back to our last episode of last season, which was past, present, future. And we had a clip in there from you, Dr. Moise, saying that you are hoping that the future of this disease is that it can be treated medically rather than through invasive procedures like IUTs or even like some of the examples we've given so far in this episode. But we wanted to ask you kind of for an update on the progress of nipocalumab, which is a candidate being studied right now to help prevent or delay the need for IUTs? So I think the answer to this disease, and Bethany, you and I have talked about this and about the whole African scene, is prevention makes sense, right? We, mm -hmm. in developing countries, the advent of rhesus immune globulin 
in the late 60s has so changed the number of women. But we're still going to see people who fail rhesus immune globulin. Someone doesn't give it right or they don't, they forget to give it. We don't have an immune globulin for Kel or for little C, and I don't foresee us having that anytime soon. So we're still going to have HDFN in the future. So the question is, okay, for those cases, if we don't want to do IUTs, how do we treat them? And Janssen Pharmaceutical, which is a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson, has uh, developed this antibody, this monoclonal antibody. So it's a synthetic antibody that blocks the receptor at the placental level to keep the bad antibody from crossing to the baby. That's the simplistic concept. It also turns out this same receptor is responsible for how much antibody floats around in your bloodstream. And so by giving this medication, you drop moms tighter. So you win on both ends. You drop the circulating tighter that could cross the placenta and you block the placenta too. So a double approach to a therapeutic approach. Phase two, so just to step back for a second for our listeners, there are three phases, actually there are four, but there are three major phases to approving a drug in the United States. You have to do what's called preclinical studies. That's in animal studies to show the drug's safe, typically in some form of primate. Then you do phase one, which is you give the drug to healthy human volunteers. I don't know who these people are, but they take the drug and they get paid to do it. And they check all this blood work on them. And if you show no badness, you move to phase two, which is where nipocalamid is currently has completed phase two. And that's where you give it to patients with the disease. And you do two things. You say, is it safe? Does it work? And how much do you have to give? Because you're trying to figure out the dose of the drug that's effective. That's phase two. And phase three, unfortunately, for requirements by the FDA is you have to do, typically it's two randomized trials where you give some of the patients a placebo, which is sugar water, if you would, and some get the drug and you look at the outcome. In rare diseases like this, the FDA will accept one randomized trial in phase three and say, you still have to give placebo mm -hmm. and compare it to the effect of the drug. Because we know that even in placebo, in a lot of diseases, doesn't make sense to me for this one, but in a lot of diseases, there is a placebo effect. That is, you believe you're getting better even though the drug isn't working. And mm -hmm. so to take that away, these randomized trials are done between placebo and drug to see is the drug really effective in, in producing outcome. This is even done in cancer therapy. Believe it or not, they give cancer patients placebos versus new drugs to see if they work. So phase mm -hmm. two was just completed. Uh, I think we finished it like first part of 2023. And the data's analyzed. It's been presented in some verbal presentations. We're trying to in fact, this morning I was working on the manuscript yet again. So I'm not at liberty to produce all the numbers, but I can tell you what's out there. And that's that in very sick patients, so with 13 patients uh, who had either lost a baby or had transfusions before 24 weeks. So that was the criteria to get in. And it was only D and Kel that were allowed in. So they had to have a pretty bad history. Um, in 54% of them, they received no transfusions at all. They got to 32 weeks without transfusions. Wow, that's awesome. And we would expect them all, based on what we've been discussing today, to have worsening disease or equivalent disease, 
but in more than half of the patients, they escaped having transfusions and almost every one of them had a live baby with one exception. So that's really important to say a big difference in outcome. So based on that data, Janssen is in the midst of putting together the phase three trial, which again will be drug versus placebo. What they've decided to do is do what's called a two-to-one randomization. So you're twice as likely to get the drug as you are to get placebo. So two-thirds of the patients will get the drug. One-third will get the placebo. The criteria are pretty broadened now. They're not the really bad patients that we picked for phase two. They're patients with any IUT, one or more, any IUT, and they've included D, C, Kel, uh, Duffy, and so pretty broad criteria to get into the trial. Uh, knowing though that the trial's what we call blinded, so the investigator doesn't know and the patient doesn't know what they're getting. And then we follow them very carefully through the pregnancy, just like we would do any alleyimmunized pregnancy with serial MCAs. They need transfusions. They'll be at a center with experience in doing transfusions. The company will pay for them to travel to those centers to get the transfusions if they need it. I think they're planning to enroll 120 patients worldwide before they break the code. So the FDA is making them do all 120 before they break the code to see if it works or not. So that's hopefully going to start really soon. Uh, in the next month or two, actually, we'll have some U.S. centers opening up. And can you explain to us what you mean by break the code? Because I think this is kind of fascinating. Yeah. So in a placebo-controlled trial, uh, to meet the FDA requirements, your investigators and your patients are not allowed to know what they're getting. Again, to take into account the placebo effect I mentioned. In rare situations where the patient has a complication, you can find out what they're getting. Uh, it won't be the need for IUT. You won't be able to break the code. Typically in a blinded trial, the investigator has no idea what the outcome is till the end of the trial, and then the groups are exposed. And you say, okay, here's what happened in the placebo group. Here's what happened in the treated group. Now let's look at the difference in outcomes. So that's when the code is broken. Only the pharmacy knows, our research pharmacies will know what they're giving us. And it'll look the same in the same bag of fluids as to whether it's the drug or the placebo. And in fact, understand they want to put a brown paper bag over the top of it in addition to it. So we have no idea what the patient's getting. We can't follow their titers. Uh, we will know that their free DNA is positive to get into the trial. They have to have a certain significant titer to the different antibodies I mentioned. But we can't we can't follow their titers to know what happens. But we can follow their MCAs every week, but we can't follow their titers. Because as I mentioned, the titer is going to go down with the drug. Okay. Yeah. So that would oh, be indicative of... That right. would break the code. That would titers. break the code, yeah. Right. Okay. So, so once you're to the point where you can break the code, and because you're seeing success it, it, with this drug, do they still continue doing the placebo? Yeah, great question. So there are in these types of trials, things called interim analysis, where they break the code like halfway through in a special committee breaks the code and looks at it and says, okay, we have to stop. The drug's either not working or the drug's working really well. Okay. That's called an interim analysis. And as a special committee does that, the FDA would not allow an interim analysis. They felt that 
all 120 patients have to be in the study before they looked at the results. So there will not be an interim analysis in this particular study. And then I also wanted to just go back to Agna's episode, and we got permission from Jansen for her to share her full story. And so she was in the trial, and you know we see the whole the whole story play out and her results and everything. Is that the Lithuanian patient? Yes. Yes, yes. She's the one with, you said her titers are in the millions, I yeah. believe. Yeah, now it is, yeah. No, she sent yeah. me her baby's picture. Yeah, unfortunately for Agnes, one of the entry criteria for phase three is that you can't have received the drug in the past. Several of the patients have asked about that. And Janssen's not allowing them back in at this point until phase three is done. And then it would be a different story. So they have to wait till phase three is done. Okay, so let's talk about, really quick, what are some important things for patients to be aware of as they think about this phase three trial? Well, number one, you can't do plasmapheresis and IVIG in combination with this trial. So if you are enrolled as a participant in this phase three trial, um, that takes those options off the table for you. Plasmapheresis and IVIG, not an option. So that's very important to understand, especially knowing that there is a placebo arm to this trial. So 33% chance you could get placebo, which is no drug at all. And then also important to know that you will be getting uh, very close monitoring and um, good care and access to intrauterine blood transfusions if you need them. Travel expenses and lodging expenses should be covered by Janssen Pharmaceuticals for trial participants. Another important thing is that you need to apply kind of early in your pregnancy to participate in this trial. So if you are thinking about this option, even before you're pregnant, go ahead and bring it up with your MFM, start asking questions, start gathering information so that you can make a good decision in time to participate if that's what you would like to do. Just think the gestational age is going to be probably the most limiting factor. So if someone you know, it's 20 weeks gestation, they don't qualify. They're going to need to be between 14 and 15 weeks. So we have time to get the free DNA tests back. Uh, even if they have a homozygous partner, they still require the free DNA, uh, different chemistries, EKG, physical exam, all that needs to be done. And, and the limiting factor is going to be the free DNA coming back quickly, usually hopefully within a week to get them in because they need to get the drug by 16 and six sevenths weeks. So they have to get the drug by the end of the 16th week, technically. And so if they're in a more advanced pregnancy, they wouldn't qualify for the trial. So an early early seeking information makes sense. Yeah. I just want to make it super clear that nobody asked us to give this information today. Bethany and I and Dr. Moise want to share it to our audience because we think it's relevant to a lot of our listeners. And so... You know, we wrote this script and Bethany's talking through things that she thinks are really important considerations as a patient. Yes. And just going off of what many, many patients have asked me about this trial, because these are the things I think most of them are thinking about and considering. And so, yeah, it's good to have all the information possible. And then, of course, if we if you want to learn more and we didn't touch on something that you need to know, you can look back at our webinar that we did. And uh, that's a lot more in depth. So be sure to look at that. We'll just link that in the show notes. We can also, let's link the clinical trial listing because that has a list of all the sites too for the study. And I wanted to add the phase two trial 
is the one that Agna participated in. And you can go back and listen to her episode if you haven't heard it. She has extremely severe disease. She had lost three babies and had no living children going into um, this trial with her fourth pregnancy. And um, and then now she has a healthy three, maybe she's four, but anyway, healthy daughter. That was such an incredible story. And so that could also help you just understand more about the patient perspective on uh, participating in this trial. And again, it's this will be the phase three trial coming up, so slightly different. But um, yeah, Agna had a wonderful experience. Hey, what what years kind of are the phase three trials supposed to be open for? Well, I mean, the plan is to, it, until they enroll 120 patients, um, they're looking at quite a few centers around the world, like 30 or 40 centers. Phase two had, I think, 14 centers. Uh, and again, because the criteria is, is so much different, there'll be going to be many more people that qualify. I think they're shooting for like a three-year duration. Because uh, remember, if we enrolled everybody tomorrow, they still have to deliver and we have to follow their babies. And so there's a lag time between entry and, and outcomes. And so uh, I would say they're shooting for three years is what they're trying to do. Phase two was two, 2019 to 2022, but it only involved 13 patients and with very strict criteria. And we had COVID in the middle of that too, which slowed things down. Well, this is just very exciting. This is a huge light, honestly, I think, in the future for, for me as a patient, just thinking in, uh, about the possibilities. Let's talk Africa. You should tee us up, Bethany. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Okay, let's talk about a continent that I love dearly and hold closely to my heart because I grew up there. Africa, our our whole Aloe Hope team has just been drawn to the patients in Africa over the past few years for lots of reasons. Um, well, number one, because this is a preventable, treatable, temporary disease. And a lot of patients in Africa are not receiving that prevention. They're not receiving the right care and they're losing their babies and having a whole lot of devastating consequences. We just feel like there's a lot of potential in Africa to advance uh, the treatment and the outcomes for this disease. And also the people that we've met are so lovely and we've just fallen in love with them. Over my t past 10 years of patient advocacy, I have become friends with a lot of women in Africa, um, a lot of other patients, and it has been really difficult to, um, I guess, support them because I felt like I couldn't really help them in their pursuit of better care. I felt very helpless. And so, I mean, I could just encourage them and support them emotionally. But now in the past year or two, we have actually been able to kind of infiltrate and start helping them receive the care that they need to have healthy pregnancies and healthy babies. And that is so exciting to us. Just this year, we found this study that was put out by a group of doctors in Ethiopia, and they were doing IUTs. And we were so excited because I haven't seen much of any. I mean, we just talked about Rosa's story. That was not really a realistic possibility in Kenya, getting an IUT. And so we had this study in our back pocket, which came out, I think it was like in April of 2023. And we were like, how cool is this? And then you had the opportunity, Bethany, to really utilize that knowledge and translate that into another living baby. 
Yes. Well, years before I met Rose, I met Essie online and um, we just developed a friendship and she told me she had lost two babies to HDFN and it was heartbreaking and I really could not do anything for her in Africa. I remember saying, is there any way you could just come to the U.S. for care? Of course she couldn't. I mean, that's just a huge ask. Um, And so... Uh, she and I just kind of went back and forth, similarly to Agna, how we just were like, you know, brainstorming constantly. How can she have a living baby? And so when we found this um, study showing that they're they're doing successful IUTs in Ethiopia, um, we were just so encouraged. And long story short, we were able... Essie got pregnant. We were able to get her over to Ethiopia and she received IUTs from that team of doctors who were incredible, just the kindest, most generous men and um, skilled at what they do and using resources that they have available to do this really hard work over there. And um, she now has, Essie now has a healthy baby girl as a result. And so years in the making, but she got that baby here alive. (laughs) Oh, it's amazing. It's incredible. It's incredible. They have really minimal resources over there, especially one thing we've learned about that's a huge issue is access to blood because they can identify, oh yeah, this baby needs an IUT now, but it doesn't mean they can just do it. They have to wait for the blood to be available, which can sometimes take a week or more. And even that's in quite a streamlined system in Ethiopia, actually. So I do want to talk about just like the hurt that this continent, or at least from what we've seen in multiple countries in Africa, is going through to try to manage these pregnancies and prevent them. But just to give, I want to give a little quote to paint that picture from this study. And we're linking, we'll link to this study in the bottom of the show notes anyway. And they did have live birth after IUT of 90.5%, which is, you know, a tiny bit lower than we've seen in other centers, but for the resources they have, it's incredible. Um, But what they say, it's great. What they say is isoimmunization remains, and isoimmunization is some other countries use that instead of alloimmunization, but same thing, remains a significant factor in perinatal morbidity and continues to compromise women's obstetric care in sub-Saharan Africa due to the poor antenatal practices for all RH negative women, failure to recognize sensitizing events in pregnancy and to treat them appropriately, failure and absence of facilities to determine the degree of phenomaturtal bleeding and the the unaffordability of anti-D immunoglobulin. So I just want us to talk about the extent of the problem. I think Rose's story was a great testament to that, but this disease is not rare in Africa. I mean, in the U.S., it happens in less than 1% of pregnancies or around 1%. But in other countries, the alloimmunization rate, like women who have antibodies, is much higher. So there's been a study in Sudan of women who are pregnant with their second or later child, like they've had a previous pregnancy before, 10.8% of those had red cell antibodies. In Uganda, 9.8%, and that's just any pregnant women, even with their first pregnancy. And also in Nigeria, 5.8%. So this is a huge continental problem. With almost no access to treatment. Yeah, right. yeah. For these women. So yeah, let's talk about why. Why? What is the issue with accessing RH immunoglobulin, which is 
the main way to prevent this. Many of these countries can't afford to purchase what we all know as Rogam. Uh, it should be called rhesus immune globulin, but it's made by Kendron. It's quite expensive. And so uh, they can't purchase it or bring it into their country. When I talked to Rose, she had to buy her own. She actually literally went to a pharmacy and purchased her own medication. So I just think it's been a priority issue with these countries and their healthcare systems of not making it a public health initiative. You know, first of all, you have to find out your RH negative. Not every woman in these countries even gets blood typing done. Rose knew, she told me when she was a blood donor in high school, she learned she was RH negative. But that's pretty unusual. So you first start with who's RH negative. It turns out about 8 to 10% of the population of these countries is in fact RH negatives, 15% in the US, but it's still fairly high at 8 to 10% RH negative. And then they have to know their RH negative first and get educated. They need this and they have to go buy it themselves. And my understanding is that the most widely available product for whatever reason, probably because of cost, is something called RH clone, which is a monoclonal antibody made in India that uh, is questionably effective. Uh, I do believe the uh, there's a study coming out in Lancet soon to question its efficacy in these patients. And I know in Rosa's story, she received it multiple times and still was sensitized. So it may not be as effective as a what we call polyclonal product that comes from plasma. And these countries just don't have programs set up to harvest plasma from either donors or sensitized women to make their own approved uh, polyclonal rogam type product. So they're currently buying this monoclonal product from India, which is questionably effective. So it's a matter of availability and, and the issue of public health and how they're uh, managing these arch negative women. And the monoclonal Rogam is not approved for use in the U.S. or in Europe, right? That's right. There's been lots and lots of work done on monoclonal, or if you would, synthetic rhesus immune globulin, and all of the uh, studies have failed. And that replicating what nature has done with polyclonal plasma, uh, those studies have been uh, ineffective. And so everybody's searching for that magic bullet to make a synthetic rhesus immune globulin, but no one has succeeded to date, yet this Indian company is selling their product to the African countries as the only product available. Wow. And you know what is just, uh, this is what really makes me upset when I think about it, is that a lot of women are scrounging together like a third of their monthly income to be able to pay for one dose of this. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> what do we do? That's just, just terribly just... depressing now. <laughs> no, it's just, it's a good insight to see what they have to do. Go ahead. No, I don't know. I don't know what to say. It's just, it's a, it's an unfortunate picture. Well, I, I, I think, I think what you all are doing is, is educating folks and opening this Pandora's box and realizing it's a two pronged approach, right? It's first improving the education of these women to know their blood type and to need it, then to hopefully help them get the right rhesus immune globulin. And then finally, those who fail, and there will be failures as we talked about, do they have access to facilities and expertise to have their babies treated with 90 plus success rates uh, to, to have good outcomes? And so I think it's a multifaceted approach to try to change this aspect of their healthcare system. Mm -hmm. There are some good projects. The Elden people from that make the Elden card, 
which is, comes out of Sweden, is a little tiny bedside point of care testing with a couple of drops of blood. Uh, they've done studies in Pakistan and other places where you can train non-healthcare workers to determine blood types of people within a few minutes with a drop of blood. And I know they're doing some work in Kenya, I believe. They're, they're starting to do some work there with trying to educate patients. Yeah, to your point, I mean, Bethany and I, a lot of what we're immersed in is treatment after these women develop this disease. But in Africa, I mean, prevention is king right now. It's so important. Mm -hmm. So maybe what we should do is kind of transition to sharing what folks can do to support people all over the world affected by this disease or who could be affected by this disease. And I also think it's a great way to close out the season um, because I know that yeah. a lot of our topics have been and stories have been so powerful. People are going to be wondering what's my role in this, you know? Okay. So what can we do about this? How can we contribute? How can the listener pitch in? So there's a lot of options you can read about the global shortage of RH immune globulin and amplify the voices of organizations serving this cause by following them on social media or donating to them. We'll post some links in the show notes. The one that is immediately coming to mind is Rhesus Solution Initiative in Nigeria. They are amazing. They're doing incredible work educating young girls and women about the importance of knowing their blood type and uh, what to do next. And they're also giving care to RH negative pregnant women. And uh, that's one that comes to mind. But yeah, we'll post some links to that. You can also become a recurring donor for the Allo Hope Africa program. And um, we need about $12,000 a year to sustain this program. And this is a new program we just launched this year. And we are already seeing results coming out of this program. It's incredible. We're connecting with doctors and nurses and patients and um, blood people. And just it's just an amazing program. So we need this funding to continue this program in Africa. And by the way, Rose is now working as the Allo Hope Foundation ambassador in Kenya. She's doing incredible work. And she's personally counseling alloimmunized women every day. She's traveling to their local hospitals to see them. Uh, she's even communicating with their doctors and helping facilitate the best care for them and helping facilitate donor blood when they urgently need it. She's making all of these connections. And so this funding for this program will help us pay for women to get accurate lab testing. Also, women who think that they might have this condition, but they're not sure because they haven't received accurate results or they just can't afford to have the test in the first place. And then anyone who becomes a recurring donor of $50 a month or more, they will receive email updates from Rose about the progress that she is seeing in the Allo Hope Africa initiative. And that's really special to see how your contribution is affecting real live women and babies that are affected by this disease. Um, you can also just do a one-time donation to Allo Hope. We're, we're running Lucy Stocking Fundraiser. We run the Lucy Stocking Fundraiser at the end of every year, and it begins on Giving Tuesday. And it's such a special event because it not only raises money 
to continue this great work that the foundation is doing, but it also helps women honor their HDFN babies. So follow us on Facebook and Instagram and keep an eye out for those posts about the Lucy Stocking Fundraiser. We also collect donations year round, of course, on our website. And then if you also want to host a stocking fundraiser for your child, just email us at info at allohopefoundation.org. Another way to give back is to donate blood or donate plasma. You can, even if you have antibodies, there are special red cell programs that you can participate in. And then of course, promoting awareness of this disease by talking about it with friends and family, talk about it with your provider or your nurse. A lot of times they're like super curious about it. It's a very interesting disease. Ask your doctors about this at your next appointment. Share on social media, you know, learn about this disease and advocate. Dr. Moise, is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to touch on before we go? You, you and I, Bethany, talked about this the other night. I've been doing fetal medicine for some 30 years now. And I've seen some, I remember seeing my first transfusion when I was a senior um resident in 1985, and I watched my attending do an intraperitoneal transfusion under fluoroscopy, not ultrasound. And I just thought it was the coolest thing. And I said, I, I need to do this. This is what I want to do when I grow up. And in the last 30 years, I've watched a lot of new therapies come on board for the unborn baby, uh, things like laser for twin twin and meningomalacial repair for spina bifida to make, you know, some have some children be able to walk. But of all the different things that we've come up with to help the fetus, this is the one that's been the most successful. And transfusions have resulted in more live babies than any other fetal procedure we do. And what I think has drawn me to this particular area and why I've spent most of my life doing research in it and taking care of patients with HDFN is that their babies are normal. There's no structural problem. There's no genetic problem. These are normal unborn children. They just happen to be the wrong blood type. And to Bethany's earlier comments when we started today, holding someone's hand through this very difficult time when there's a tremendous amount of guilt of attacking their own baby through their antibodies that they had nothing to do with making and have nothing to do with controlling has been very rewarding to know that we can help them get through this short time in pregnancy and end up with a normal child. That's been my mission. That's been my calling. And I hope to pass that baton on to the next generation. But thanks for having me today. And thank you so much for all of the work you do for patients like us. It's it's incredible. And we're so grateful for you. We are. I'm not, not talking because I'm going to be crying. So I cried enough in Rose's episode. I was listening back to it. And every time I talked in that episode, I was crying. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was terrible. Ugh. And as we wrap up this season, I just want to say thank you to all of our amazing guests who shared their stories and their expertise with us. Brittany, Katie, Amber, Emily, Agna, and Rose, we were so honored to get to interview you and hear your stories. And of course, our amazing maternal fetal medicine specialists, Dr. Kara Markham and Dr. Ken Moise. Thank you so much for all that you've done in the field and for your contributions to this podcast. We are so grateful for you.
listener feedback we get is a huge contributor to whether or not we decide to do another season. And the listeners have been so kind and people reach out to us on Facebook or through email or through Instagram and share about the way that the podcast has given them a feeling of closeness and support and empowerment. And it has been so wonderful to see the way that this has been received by listeners. And so even though every time we do this, we're like, are we going to do this again? It feels like we have to do this again. So we can't wait until season three. We we got we got to do it. People just have to be stuck with us being weirdos in our closets. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so whether you're a patient, provider, or otherwise affected by antibodies in pregnancy, we're here for you. We have great resources on our website at allohopefoundation.org. That's A-L-L-O, hopefoundation.org. See ya. The Allo Podcast is a production of the Allo Hope Foundation. It was researched and written by Molly Sherwood and me, Bethany Weathersby. It's produced and edited by CJ Hausch and Eric Hurst of Media Club. The Allo Podcast is sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. And um, get, a, get the... Get the word out there. <laughs> I'm going to stop talking, you guys. <laughs> I thought that was great. That was great. I'm so tired. I can't. I can't make it make sense. <laughs> you can't make it All make right. sense. <laughs> oh, that was awesome.